right. Welcome to the Sweet Science of Playing podcast today. We're at Nathan Carley. Welcome, Nathan. Thanks, mate. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for having me. No, thanks for coming on. We've been in touch before like many years ago, I think, when you were a member of Science of Sport way back in the day, but that was, uh, that was a long time ago now, so it's good that you get you on, get you on and chat to you face-to-face, well, at least over, uh, over camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, thanks. Um... Yeah, I think the world's changed a bit since since back then, but um, yeah, keen to keen to have a chat today, mate. Yeah, no, and obviously what you're doing is change a bit too. Now you're working within the NRL, so do you want me to give a, a little brief background about yourself? Then we're going to dive into. I'm going to clickbait the shit out of this podcast about these overtones. <laughs> so we're, we're going to go into some of these overtones stuff after that. Yeah, um, my background. Yeah, currently rehab and speed coach at the Brisbane Broncos. Um, professional rugby league team here in, in Australia. Uh, been there for 12 months. Prior to that, I worked in cricket, which is a very different sport. Um, three and a half years at Cricket New South Wales. Um, different type of athlete, different sporting culture. Um, so the contrast between that and a contact sport like rugby league has been an interesting sort of transition <laughs> for me. Uh, and then, yeah, before that, uh, worked in rugby league academy, high school setting, um, all sorts of different sports when I was a bit younger. Um, did a bit of research uh, at the University of Technology in Sydney as well um, when I was sort of a fledgling S&C. So that's kind of, yeah, I guess my background. Um, and, yeah, apart from that, sort of love my own training Um like, like mucking around in the gym and trying out new stuff and uh, yeah yeah if anyone's uh, not following Anthony on Instagram you can you can follow me post the training you post the training pretty much every damn day yeah it doesn't take any much well much more effort to <laughs> just stick the phone out while you're while you're having a lift or whatever so yeah it's a bit of a hobby of mine I like to sort of document what, what I'm doing and um, share it with people I get a a lot of really cool feedback from people and people seem to enjoy it so yeah like i said a bit of a hobby i guess <laughs> nice well let's dive straight into the topic for today so you recently well kind of recently wrote a an article about knees over toes for sportsmen and obviously i think i think within combat sports out of probably every sport combat sports has probably picked up the knees over toes trend the most probably because of the influences around that so do you want to maybe dive into, let's maybe start with what Knees Over Toes is. Obviously, it's not anything new. It's just you kind of rebranded as something new. But what Knees Over Toes is, kind of how it came about, and then kind of your, we can just go down the, the track of your thoughts on Knees Over Toes and kind of how it fits within that kind of training. Yeah, I suppose it's um, mm-hmm. a bit of a catch-all term that's being used at the moment. Um, like you mentioned, it's sort of, proliferated on the back of um, Ben Patrick, who kind of promotes it as his sort of like methodology, I suppose. And uh, I can imagine him, him going on, I think he got on Rogan at one point. That would have yeah. obviously exposed uh, <laughs> the, the style of training to his audience. And like you mentioned, combat sports um, have, have jumped on the bandwagon. Um, but yeah, like, like you kind of mentioned um Sometimes it's a bit ambiguous as to what people mean when you're talking about knees over toes. So essentially it's kind of um, an approach to how you would perform certain exercises. Um, 
predominantly lower body stuff. And it's basically just that we let our knees track in front of our toes when we go into deep knee flexion. Um, so deep squats, deep lunges, um, anything like that where you've uh, got that knee sort of moving forwards or anteriorly in front of the in front of the toes. And um, I suppose <clears throat> traditionally people were advised not to do that. Um, don't let your knees go in front of your toes is a pretty pervasive myth as well, I suppose. Um, it's still, it's so, still pervasive now. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, a lot of people don't realise that not letting your knees track in front of your toes can be a bad thing as well. Because um, you, you're not stopping force, you're just redistributing it. So if your knees don't track anteriorly, uh, the sort of weakest link in the chain where, where you get the, the most torque occurring in, in the system is going to be predominantly around the hips and the lower back. Um, if you want to target those areas and make them stronger, uh, a non-knees-over-toes approach is fine. Um, but sometimes people have lower back pain or they've got issues around that area of their body. And because of this pervasive myth around not letting the knees track forward, they can, I suppose, end up making things worse for themselves than they probably otherwise should. Um, but, yeah, I suppose the knees-over-toes approach is kind of um, the antidote to, to that, that myth, I guess, and it's got a lot of uptake. Um, I think, like a lot of things in the, in the fitness industry, we have sort of accepted knowledge around a topic, and every now and then someone comes out and they've got, like, the, the complete opposite perspective on things, and... People seem to get really excited about that at times as well. They lap it up and jump on bandwagons. And I think what, one of the things I noticed with it was that it was a really positive message around sort of embracing what the body can, can do and adapt to. But there was probably a little bit too, too much sort of jumping on the bandwagon and not really questioning or understanding the positives and the negatives. So I suppose that's what I tried to kind of delve into when I, when I wrote that article for Sportsmith. Um, just trying to, I suppose, provide a balanced approach and looking mm. at why it can be good and also what some of the downsides might be as well. Yeah, do you want to maybe dive into maybe starting with the positives of, of knees over toe style training and we can jump, jump into the negatives? Yeah, I mean, predominantly the, the main one is that it's it's good for training your knees like you just like any any joint um any tissue the the knee can adapt to training um so if you apply the right amount of stress at the right time and you've got adequate recovery um you're gonna get benefits so i think anecdotally a lot of people have have found that their their knees feel better they're able to perform better when they train through full ranges of motion um, we know from research that you get uh, a better range of strength adaptations when you work through larger ranges of motion. So getting into that deep knee flexion is um, is a good thing in terms of training muscles through through their full length um, and being able to get strong at, in all ranges of motion and in all positions. Um, whereas some alternative sort of training theory or other influences on the internet and that will tell you that you should never go deeper than 90 degrees. So um 
there is value in that full range of motion approach to training. Um, <clears throat> like I mentioned before, it allows us to redistribute forces. So um, my sort of default approach when I'm coaching athletes how to squat is more of a knees over toes type squat because I think you get the benefits of developing strength around the knee joint and also at the hip. Um, it also balances out forces across, like we said, the lumbar spine. Um, I think those sort of hips back, um, knees not tracking forward type approaches can sometimes aggravate uh, lumbar, lumbar <coughs> disc irritations and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think there are some benefits in, in those regards. And I don't think letting your knees track over your toes is something that you should avoid by default. I think it's something that we should encourage. But my concerns, I suppose, are when <coughs> this approach is promoted as the answer to mm. knee pain um, and athletic performance and some of the arguments that have been put forward for why it's the answer probably don't pass the sniff test at times as well. So that's, that's where I kind of um, wanted to pick things apart a little bit. Yeah, go dive into those, into those negatives and you find the... I guess the rationale behind some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of sort of social media posts and an article as well that the sort of knees over toes guy and his his um, his group or whatever you want to call them um, <laughs> <laughs> sort of got a lot of traction with. Um, and in one of them, they sort of make some pretty poor mechanistic. Um, assumptions around how things work. So they, they kind of argued that initially, the, the main argument they make is that the VMO, um, well, that sort of teardrop muscle on the quad is like the key to reducing knee pain in, in athletes or in any population really. Um, but they, they actually cite some research which probably doesn't necessarily back up what they're saying to the extent that they, they claim. So they're kind of saying that, oh, this is like a no-brainer, big, strong VMO equals no knee pain. But they cite this study and it's kind of, oh, yeah, it might be a trend in that direction, but it's it's not a sure thing. So, um, yeah, when I went and read that, the study that they, they talk about, and I think it's, it's a good thing to consider is, is when people cite research in a 30-second Instagram post, actually go and read what what they're citing. I think a lot of people just take it at face value. So I did a little bit of digging and I looked at that and I went, oh, I don't know if this says what you guys think it says. <laughs> um, and then on the back of that, they make this other claim around how deeper ranges of motion, so like knees over toes approaches <laughs> to training, allow for preferential recruitment of the VMO muscles. Um, and again, they cite a study, and, and this one basically says the complete opposite of what they're claiming. It, it, uh, it shows that around 90 degrees of um, knee flexion is where you get those peak um, EMG activities, um, or muscle activity as measured by EMG, and it actually reduces once, once you get deeper. So when I saw those claims and... The evidence they tried to use to support them, I just thought, hang on, I think there's probably reason to pop the brakes here a little bit and just understand um, what the evidence really says. Um, and, and the other thing that stood out to me was that uh, it's kind of like a cookie cutter approach to knee pain. So 
people with sore knees, they see this stuff on the internet and they go, oh, yep, this is obviously the thing I've been looking for. This is the golden bullet. But they're applying these principles without getting a proper diagnosis for their injury. Um, there's no... Well, they do sell programs that are periodized and um, built out to obviously apply load in, in a, an appropriate way. But people are jumping on the bandwagon without buying the programs and they just go, oh, this is the way I need to train. And they're going really hard really early with it. And I've anecdotally heard stories of, of people who have to significantly change their activity levels because their knee pain has gotten severely worse. Um, I've had professional athletes come up to me with knee pain and say, oh, hey, I've been trying out some of this knees over toes stuff for the last two weeks and my knees are killing me. Like they're in a worse place than they were before. So I just think we need to yeah, be a bit more measured with what we see on social media and probably just take a moment to ask some good questions around around um, some of these sort of things that I suppose appear like gimmicks to an extent. Yeah. <laughs> Have you, from your experience, maybe seen what, I guess, kind of knee pain seems to do well with this kind of training versus what doesn't? Obviously, you mentioned there's a few professional athletes making their knees worse. Was it, I guess, uh, a similar, I guess, condition around this, uh, the anecdotal stories you heard? Well, I think the problem is that <clears throat> all these knees over toe stuff, they, they just say it's good for sore knees, right? They don't tell you what it's good for. And then you've got athletes with history of meniscal damage. You've got athletes with patellofemoral pain. We've got athletes with arthritis or any number of different conditions, and they're just throwing, throwing mud at the wall and seeing what sticks. So um, I think a knees-over-toes approach to training can be part of rehab for any knee injury. It, it has a place. It's just when, how much of, how yeah. it's being applied, understanding where it fits in the big picture, um, rather than just jumping straight into it from day one. So I lean heavily on like my physios to help me with early management, get a proper diagnosis for the, the injury that the athlete has. Um, and I'll be honest, they're the experts in those initial stages of rehab yeah. and, and getting the guys going. Um, and... In consultation with them, I'll, I'll say, okay, at what point can we start to increase range of motion here and uh, start to yeah, look at some of this stuff where their knee is tracking forward. But it's all, like they're the experts and almost never the answer is we should go straight into full mm. knees over toes, deep ATG split squats, you know what I mean? So yeah, um, it just makes me wonder, like, why, why is this the, the default approach that they're promoting? Um, when the experts that I deal with day to day would almost never lean that way, I suppose. Yeah. <clears throat> is there a time where you would completely avoid, say, a knees over? I'm okay. I don't want to keep saying it's a knees over toes approach because I'm pretty sure what's going to be going to have these. It's like a normal mm. squat, but maybe you would modify training where you would try to keep that shin more vertical because someone does have such chronic knee pain that you don't want to get in the way of that and interfere with performance. Well, the simple answer is if doing deep knees-over-toes training is causing you pain, there's probably a good sign that you probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> um, 
and every individual is going to be different. Um, there's an extent to which we can work through discomfort in, in rehab. I think like an awareness that something is there. And if you use like a relative scale of say out of 10, what your pain feels like, if, if you're working at two, three out of 10, uh, depending on the injury, there's, there's some tissues that really do need to be um, protected. But if you're two or three out of 10 with a bit of discomfort, that, that's one thing. But I mean, I hear of athletes who are pushing through six, seven, eight out of 10 pain so that they can perform exercises that they've seen on the internet because they think this is the answer. Um, yeah, and like I said, my, my physios are the experts in terms of um, when and how tissues need to be protected. Uh, but yeah, I just it, it just makes me bang my head against the wall when I've got athletes <laughs> coming up to me and saying like, oh, this is excruciating. I don't know why my knee pain is not getting better. Um, yeah, they've got patellofemoral pain or yeah. arthritis in their knee. It's like, well, yeah, maybe you should stop doing that. <laughs> yeah, do it harder, like those sissy squats with the, the knees going forward to the floor and things like that, and just lower yeah, the shit yeah. out of that tendon. Yeah, yeah it's just yeah, it's just like an extreme. It's it's um, the world we live in at the moment is extremes, right? Like, yeah, I think a lot of people forget that we live on the bell curve, right? And two thirds of reality sit in the boring middle and yeah. everyone gets excited by stuff that's happening on the fringes and they jump on those bandwagons. And um, sometimes you just got to be a bit more measured and think about doing simple stuff and doing it well. Uh, and yeah, try not to get too carried away with gimmicks. <laughs> yeah. And that pendulum will swing back soon, I'm sure, as, as it always does with them. I guess training and fitness, obviously you've got the pendulum that's gone from <clears throat> knee should never go over the toes to now knee should always go over the toes and it will swing back to the middle and same, same thing with diets as well, you know? Yeah, I think there's a lot of value in exploring movement and trying different stuff out. And I've said this before, I think it's really cool to have an athlete come and approach me and say, oh, hey, I saw this, I was reading about this, what do you think? I want to try it out. Um, because the reality is, until people try stuff out, they don't know really what's what's going to work for them. Um, that's how I approach my training. I try stuff out. Yeah. Like, I don't have a coach telling me what to do. Um, you explore different movements and, and you try things out. And, and people who think outside the box and promote different ideas, they allow us to have these discussions. Um, but I think the challenge is a lot of the time... Uh, the stuff that gains traction on the internet, it's not because it's the best idea, it's because it's the idea with people yelling the loudest about it. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to like point fingers at Ben Patrick and that around the success that they've had because I see the value in um, what they've done and I actually admire the way that they promote their, their message. So I think their social media marketing strategy is, is awesome. Like they've got very eye-catching imagery. Um, the way they talk about it, it's really exciting. Gets people amped up to learn more and 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 want to try it out. And I got a lot of respect for for what they've done with with their business and their brand. Um, but on on the whole, if we're looking at what's the best thing for an individual athlete at any given time, uh, it's probably not going to be jumping all in on an extreme approach to training. It's probably yeah. going to be balanced fundamentals. Uh, done consistently, um, 
and periodised and built out with um, with a plan for, for long-term athletic development in mind. You obviously mentioned about your own training too. It would be good to kind of dive into, obviously, the work you've done with, with various athletes as well, but your own training as well with, with your strength power stuff and maybe dive into kind of your philosophy around strength and power training for sports performance. Um, I guess... I think it's more so an overarching view of kind of how you see it fitting within an section athlete's program. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> my approach is pretty boring. Like, I I look at fundamental movement patterns, squatting, hip hinging, lunging, step ups, um, upper body pushing, upper body pulling, and I respect that all of those are general physical preparation. They're they are not specific, but what they when, what happens when you remove specificity and you're doing something very general is it provides a great window for overload. So you can't mm. have high levels of specificity and high levels of overload at the same time. Um, and we, we know this intuitively, right, because this is why we train. If you had 100% specificity, that would just be playing the game or doing the sport or whatever, right? And we know that that can only take you so far in terms of your performance levels. You then need to remove some level of specificity so that you can apply an overload and adapt and get better. So in, in the gym, when we're doing strength and power training, I think we just need to understand the limitations of that space, but also embrace the strengths of it. And the strengths are that you can get bigger, stronger, and more powerful. So. In my own training, um, I'm in the gym doing basic fundamental stuff. Um, I do filter in some elements of um, like specific developmental exercises. Um, typically, they're going to be around getting strong in positions that are relevant for um, like the sporting activity that I want to do. And I'm by no means a real athlete. Like I'm a <laughs> recreational. Um, I suppose you'd call it sprinter, but I don't go very you fast. Sprint. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Re recreational, very high speed running, I suppose, yeah. is, is what I would call it. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so there are some positions that um, we hit in, in fast running that uh, I think we should overload and get stronger in. Uh, I'm also a big fan of jumps and plyometrics. So I'll include them in my strength and power training. But the the lifts I'm doing in the gym are typically barbell based. Um, you still hear me there? Yep, I got you. Oh, sorry, my headphones yeah, just something a bit funny. Yeah, barbell <laughs> based. Um, we're going to do some bilateral work. We're going to do some unilateral work. Um, I do like to try and uh, hit different different muscle contraction types. So there'll be some exercises that are eccentrically overloaded. Um, I'll put in some accessories that target like the weak links in the chain. So some some calf work, direct calf work, direct distal hamstring work, um, some groin work, more robustness type work that's going to um, support everything else that's going on. Um, I know like if you you build like a, a race car with all this horsepower um, and the driver's no good or the suspension and the wheels and the camber and stuff isn't set up correctly, think about it that way, like that the 
your calf and ankle, the uh, intrinsic <coughs> muscles in the feet around the groin, they're those finishing touches. So it's really important that we also address them. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, in the gym, we're building horsepower. So that's what I primarily focus on when I'm in there. Um, and then if, if I'm out on, on the field doing running, um, I have some fundamental drills that I like to use, but essentially they're, they're a warm-up. Like yeah. I think we get very carried away with running technique <laughs> drills and A skips, B skips, C skips, and I don't know how many other letters you can think of <laughs> skipping to. But ultimately they're just a way to warm up, feel some positions, get moving, and then doing doing the things, the thing that makes you better at it. So uh, if you want to get better at sprinting, you need to sprint. So I suppose that wraps up what, what I do in my training. Like I'll, mm. I'll get on the field and do sprints one day of the week. The next day I'll go and do lower body weights. The day after that I'll do some upper body weights and then I'll start start that three-day cycle again. Nice. <clears throat> I think what might be helpful for Muslim as well is maybe laying out how that training day in the gym looks in terms of exercise order because I think a lot of people, if they're going to go do it on their own, will just kind of throw anything in any order without much rhyme or reason and issues. So do we just run into how you like to plan that day? Yep. So this is like um, strength and power training theory 101. And it's really important that people understand this. So we need to prioritize exercises that have elements of technical proficiency involved. So something where you need to be focused on executing like a skill. Um, We need to prioritize things that include speed and power elements early in the program. Um, And we also need to prioritize things that have high outputs earlier in the program. So what we want to try and avoid is doing those elements of our training under duress or fatigue. So an example of that might be like a box jump. Um, It's become increasingly common to see box jumps done under fatigue at the end of workouts as (laughs) like CrossFit wads and things like that. Yeah. For me, like I think that's that's bad training. in terms of we're looking to try and develop power, but we're struggling to even express power because of the fatigue and duress we're under. So we want to prioritize our ballistic lifts. So that's any sort of loaded jump. Olympic lifts, if if you're so inclined to use them. Um, any other jumps, plyometrics, medicine ball throws. They all need to be towards the start of our program. Now, if I'm putting together a lower body strength session for myself, I'm either going to have um, a, a power clean or variation of. It's probably going to be like 1A in my program. Or on the other, other day, I'll do lowers. I'll do like a squat variation. So the power clean is a little bit more dynamic. The squat uh, is more heavy, overloaded. And I'll superset those exercises with some sort of jump or plyometric. Um, the next thing I'm going to move on to are like my, my main accessory lifts. They're usually going to be something that's heavy single leg or um, heavy sort of single joint focused. So that might be mm-hmm. like an RDL, which is really a hip dominant type exercise um, or like a split squat, uh, a step up exercises like those. They're going to fit there in the program. 
Um, you can still perform them under a little bit of fatigue and duress, uh, but there's still an emphasis on doing them with quality. From there, I'm going to uh, put my like more auxiliary type exercises. So, like I mentioned before, stuff that targets just a single joint robustness type exercises. So that's where I might be doing like a naughty hamstring curl, or some calf work, or some groin work, or um, something that targets the the knee extensors. So I might be doing like a seated knee extension. Um, any of those types of movements, those more single joint robustness building. Uh, targeting a weak link in the chain, they're going to come last. And the reason for that is that there's not a lot of technical um, requirements when, when you're performing them. Um, you can probably do them while you're a bit tired, a bit gassed, and you're not going to hurt yourself. Yeah. And the outputs in terms of speed and force production are not particularly high. So, um, yeah, like they're, they're safe to, to do later in the program. Nice. Uh, that's that's basically yeah, how, how I tend to structure like a lower body strength session in the gym. Have you dabbled into any, I guess, targeted foot training? Um, I do a little bit. So generally I'll do that more as prep for running sessions. Mm, so okay. I, I like to get out of out of my shoes before I, before I run. Um, so barefoot warm-up. I've got a couple of sort of intrinsic exercise that I like to do so kind of different walking patterns like rolling from heel to toe walking on toes walking on heels um, walking with inverted and everted feet uh, that's probably the full sort of main extent to to what I'll do there but um, I also in my strength sessions will typically try and do some direct calf work as well and yeah. when we're performing calf work obviously we've got a lot of tension through the intrinsics of the feet, uh, through the arches, because you're, you're pushing through that lever there. So uh, that, that's probably the full extent of, of what I do from a, from a foot training perspective. Nice. And then how does your upper body day look like? I'm assuming your upper body day follows a pretty similar principle to your lower body day. That's evolved. Uh, it used to look like that. It used to be based on sound training theory and these days it's just dirty bodybuilding because <laughs> I just don't care I'm anymore. I'm the same as you. I'm just like, yeah, man, if I'm doing upper body, I'm just, I'm just looking to get jacked. Like, I don't care anymore. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm, just, I'm just old and I don't care. But, yeah, like, in theory, we're looking for heavy barbell movements or heavy chin-up heavy pulling movement, something like that. It's going to be at the start of our program. If we want to do some sort of upper body power, it's going to be early in our program. So a dynamic bench press with bands or medicine ball throws, stuff like that early in the program. Um, I think it's really important that we get a, a decent balance between pushing and pulling movements. I don't necessarily subscribe to like a specific ratio of how much work you should do pushing and pulling, but I'd say it's a bad idea to just do heaps of pushing and no pulling. <laughs> Um, and then if we want to do any targeted single joint stuff, you're going to typically do that at the end. Um, so that's where you can join the arm farm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. And I guess for anyone listening who, who maybe does some of the knees over toes, uh, coined exercises, or I, I know there's a lot of them, a lot of different, I guess, ones with different intensity, but where would you fit those within, say, the lower body training day? Yeah, so the, the place that they fit is <coughs> late in the program. They're your, they're your robustness training type exercises, in my opinion. Um, so 
your reverse sled drags, your Nordics, um, and then, yeah, ATG split squats and things like that. I think they, they fit later in the program. Um, after you've expressed high levels of force and power with your fundamental, more traditional-based movements, um, I, I tend to target one joint, uh, use one exercise to target one joint um, when doing those auxiliary type movements. So what I mean by that is I've, if I've already done my, my squat, my lunge, my hip hinge movements, and I need to do some auxiliary movements, I'll, I'll select one uh, knee focused exercise, one calf focused exercise, one hamstring focused, mm. one groin focused. I wouldn't throw the whole kitchen at it, if you know what I mean. So yeah. I'm not going to do ATG split squats followed by reverse sled drags, followed by knee extensions. Yeah. Like that's probably overkill. Um, <laughs> but you could select one of those uh, and include it there and then hit some of those other um, areas as well. You can just create like a little circuit of, of three or four exercises and do two, two or three rounds of that at the end of your session. Nice. Have you played around with with long duration isometrics for, I guess, tendon health or even like numbing the tendon before training and things like that? <clears throat> yeah, we, we use that with, um, in particular, athletes who've got like Achilles tendinopathies. Mm. We'll do long sort of uh, light to medium load holds, more for an analgesic effect in terms of like reducing sensitivity and pain. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably not going to drive adaptations that reverse the the damage that you've got there, but it definitely helps athletes to feel better, uh, which can help them get through training sessions. Um, but tendons, if, if we want to uh, train them to make them bigger and stronger so they can handle forces and, and make long-term changes that reduce pain and symptoms, then they need heavy, slow load. So mm. um, isometrics are heavy and slow, I suppose, with the fact that they're actually not going anywhere. They're very slow. <laughs> um, so you're overcoming isometrics, have a, have a role to play there. But, yeah, it, it can be pretty boring stuff too. Like if we've got patella tendinopathy, it's probably going to be heavy knee extensions or, um, yeah, it could be a reverse sled drag, something like that. There's, there's a place yeah. for that there. Um, like I mentioned around the, the calf or the ankle, the uh, the Achilles tendon. We're looking at heavy calf raises, um, heavy sled pushes, things like that that are that are going to be slow uh, and apply a lot of uh, overload. Uh, that those those are the things that are going to help from a long term perspective. Mm. But yeah, those those sort of light to medium holds for longer durations, uh, they're a really good way to help get you up and and prep you for training if if you've got um, like awareness or soreness in in a tendon. Nice. Is there a a pain threshold, I guess, you would advise for when doing some of these heavy uh, exercises for, I guess, repairing a tendon? So if you had a sore Achilles and you're doing heavy calf raises, obviously if you've got a 10 out of 10 pain, there's probably something you don't want to do, but is there some kind of guide that you use in that, in that regard? Yeah, I think um, that pain scale, you could probably push it a little bit higher when it comes to the heavy, slow tendon loading. Um, yeah. maybe a, a four, maybe a five. Um, if you're starting to get into six, seven, eight, then you probably need to regress a little bit. But uh, tendons love load. They love heavy, slow load. That's that's what's going to make them adapt, make them stronger, make them bigger and thicker. Um, 
that's that's the answer to to your long term issues with tendons. Um, what what's going to stir them up is lots of short, fast contacts. So plyometrics, mm. jumps, running. Um, so you need to try and offset that with the heavy, slow stuff. Uh, but yeah, like like you mentioned there, um, that pain scale can probably be a little bit more aggressive when it comes to the heavy, slow loading for a tendon. Uh, and then yeah, if you're experiencing pre pre skills training, if you've got tendon pain, those longer longer holds, they're actually probably going to reduce your level of pain. So you you might feel like a, a four out of ten um, pre training, and, and some of these long holds. Can, can really help reduce that down to a two or three, which can make a big difference in terms of allowing you to mm. get some quality training under your belt. Do you want to give, maybe give some examples for maybe some of the major pain points might be like knee, Achilles, maybe shoulders, if there's something there. Um, this is like a long duration isometric, how long and maybe an exercise example? Yeah, so the one we deal with the most is probably Achilles <clears throat> and, and patella tendon pain. Um, there's there's different protocols out there that you can find, but an example that we might use would be, um, say, some 45 second holds in the Smith machine in in a in a single leg calf raise. So, uh, just bringing the the heel up off the ground about half an inch or so, um, holding that for 45 seconds with um, well, 30 to 45 seconds with probably half your half to two thirds of your body weight on on the bar. Um, then, then we'll take the athlete over to the wall and do some like wall uh, holds, uh, not necessarily like your reactive kind of switches and stuff like that, but putting your hands against the wall, leaning at 45 degrees, coming up onto your toes, sort of like in a running position, one knee up, um, extending, pushing into the wall. Again, sort of 30 to 45 second holds there, sort of trying to feel some pressure through the hands that you're, that you're developing by pushing through, through the ground, through the ball of your foot. Um, and then we'll progress from there into sort of some marches or we can even potentially take them over to the stairs and do some slow jogs up the stairs and mm. just start getting them moving. Because um, yeah. tendons do warm up, they, they do get better with activity. Yeah. So some of those longer holds and then like a softer entry into activity can, can help those tendons feel a bit better before you roll them out on the field and get stuck into some speed and agility or, or intense football skills. Um, the other one, the patella tendon, might get the guys in, in the knee extension machine, sort of, again, moderate to light load, uh, single leg, kind of looking at about 30 degrees of knee flexion and just holding there for yeah, 30 to 45 seconds. Um, you can do two or three holds on, on each side there and, uh, again, then progressing to some lighter activity. So getting into like a dynamic warm-up, going through some movements. Um, you, can, you can get into like your, your sissy squat holds and things like that as well. Uh, again, 30 to 45 seconds, moderate load. Um, and from there, again, progressing into your skills and things like that. But I think what I've noticed is that there is individual preferences in terms of these exercises. So some athletes will find one exercise helps them more than others. Mm -hmm. So ex experiment a little bit with a couple of options, see what works for you and build that into your prep, prep routine. Um, it's really important to understand that Tendon pain is a long-term injury. So once you've got uh, a, a tendinopathy, it's going to last 6, 12, yeah. <laughs> 18, 24 months. Like it's it's not the sort of thing that just goes away after six weeks. Um, and in fact, it, for most athletes, if, if you're sort of past 25, it's probably just going to be something that you have for the rest of your playing career. 
So developing routines around how you prepare your body and um, get get ready to get the most out of that tendon and, and how to load it in between bouts of exercise as well uh, becomes a really important uh, part of, yeah, being, being able to get the most out of your body. Nice. <laughs> that's, uh, that's some great advice. I actually want to end this out. I want to keep this podcast kind of solely on that knees over toes, tending kind of, kind of topic, which has been awesome. And we've managed to do that. But if people want to follow you, find out what you're doing, all of that, where can they find you? Uh, yeah, like I said, a bit of a hobby of mine's like the Instagram stuff. So if you want to follow me there, it's just my name, Nathan Kiley with an underscore at the end of it. Um, I don't know if I've got anything else really to share. But I sell some <laughs> programs and stuff on there. So if you want to separate from some of your hard-earned cash, you can find the link on my bio and buy my programs. <laughs> no, it's nice. I like yeah. the plug. I like the plug. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll throw Nathan's Instagram in the description too. So if anyone's who's watching and wants to follow him easy, you can go down there and you can check that. But other than that, thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. No, you're welcome, mate. Awesome. Thanks for having me and um, stay in touch. Thanks, thanks for reaching out and connecting. Not perfect.